0: You are now listening to MacroDose. MacroDose. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of MacroDose, your weekly fix of everything economics. My name is Nick Dearden. I'm the director of Global Justice Now, and I've been a campaigner on issues of global justice for over two decades. Today, I'll be taking you through some of the essentials of my new book, Pharmonomics: How Big Pharma Destroys Global Health, published by Verso Books in October last year. We'll be going on a deep dive through the history of the pharmaceutical industry, asking how it became the leviathan it is today, why it has been able to assert its unchecked geopolitical influence across the world, and whether there is anything that can be done to loosen its grip on global health. As always, a big thank you to those of you who support Macrodose over at patreon.com. If you enjoy the show and have the means, do consider becoming a subscriber today. You can find all the show's latest content, including The Fix, Macrodose's monthly newsletter, and James's regular Q&A videos over at patreon.com forward slash macrodose. Last August, a beaming Joe Biden told a press conference, we've been fighting Big Pharma for a long time, a long time. We finally had enough votes, by a matter of one, to beat them. The US president had just announced that he would, in effect, push down the price the public pays for key medicines used to treat diabetes, blood cancer and kidney disease, saving millions of Americans and the federal government a small fortune. Now, it's true that Biden was only doing what is common in most of Europe, where it's taken for granted that public authorities can negotiate the price of drugs they are buying. But this is big stuff in the US, a country where big pharma has had free reign to charge whatever the market will bear for life-saving products for a long time. In response, the pharmaceutical giants have launched multiple legal actions across the country, even claiming Biden's negotiations contradict their supposed constitutional right to charge whatever they like for their products. So what has happened to the cozy relationship that American politicians have had with an industry that, until recently, they regarded as key to both their physical and economic well-being? And what will it mean for a Labour government in the UK where rapidly rising prices for branded medicines are already pushing the NHS to breaking point? To answer those two questions, let's start with a quick look at the history of the sector. The pharmaceutical industry is really a product of the post-war period. The 1950s and 60s were a golden age for drug companies, where a series of breakthrough drugs, from antibiotics to antidepressants to vitamin supplements, transformed both our health and our relationship to medicines. The industry consolidated, developing powerful marketing campaigns, which convinced us that medicines didn't have to just be used when we were very ill, but could play an important role in keeping us well. Prescriptions ballooned, as did the profits of the industry. But there was a problem. The more important these medicines became to our lives, the more we questioned the power of the corporations that produced them. In the late 1960s, with serious regulation being threatened in the US Congress and the British Parliament, Big Pharma went on the offensive. It created two winning arguments, which have underlined the industry's power to this day. First, it said, Yes, our medicines are expensive, but that's because they cost a lot to research. Damage our profits, and you will have no medicines. For its second argument, it told politicians, We represent the cutting edge of scientific innovation. Damage us, and you damage your own economy, and your standing in the world. Now, in the middle of the Cold War, when technological edge was everything, politicians bought it. They turned a blind eye as Big Pharma captured university departments, corrupted health professionals, and became major players in the already weak regulatory system. The Pharma giants became incredibly powerful, and by the early 1990s, they used this power to fundamentally reinvent their industry, creating the template we've become familiar with in recent decades. To understand the dynamics that forged Big Pharma into what it is today, we can turn to Naomi Klein's No Logo, the seminal work for understanding the changes to capitalism which were taking place in the 1990s. In No Logo, Klein argues that corporations had actually come to see their brand as more important to their profits than their actual products. For instance, the power of the McDonald's brand is more important to the profits of McDonald's than the burgers it makes, which aren't much different to anyone else's burgers. Realizing this, Companies like McDonald's went in search of ways to better protect their brand, even as they ruthlessly cut back on other parts of their business. Big Pharma was engaged in a similar push, except for the pharmaceutical companies, it wasn't brand that was central to their profitability, but another so-called intangible asset, their intellectual property. Trademarks, trade secrets, and in particular, the patents that give them the exclusive right to produce certain drugs. Like other big businesses, in the 90s, farmer executives realized that what built their wealth was not really their factories, their staff, or even their research capacity per se, but precisely the right to monopolize knowledge which that intellectual property gave them. Regardless of whether the underlying medicines were even produced, intellectual property was an incredibly profitable commodity, open to being moved around to high profits or avoid regulation, or to being bought and sold on financial markets. So the key to cementing their power was making intellectual property sacrosanct. Throughout the 1990s, Big Pharma lobbied and funded US politicians, supported new laws, integrated itself into decision-making, and fought court battles to set new legal precedents, giving the industry ever more rights to extend its patents and keep its data secret. But its greatest achievement was a new agreement at the recently formed World Trade Organization. TRIPS, or the Trade-Related Aspects of Intellectual Property Rights Agreement, extended US-style patent protection to the entire world. Now, before this, most countries could produce cheaper generic medicines fairly freely. Even in Britain, which had quite high intellectual property standards for the time, Harold Wilson's government overrode patents on antibiotics, which he believed Pfizer and others were profiteering from, and imported cheap generic antibiotics from Italy, where they didn't have the same patent laws. The TRIPS agreement made this kind of thing much harder, enforcing, in effect, monopoly protection everywhere. The impact on the Global South was huge. To give just one example, by the early 2000s, as many as one in nine people were living with HIV in South Africa. While there were life-saving drugs on the market, at $10,000 per patient, they were unaffordable to almost everyone in the country the South African government proposed a new piece of legislation which could have let them import cheaper, generic HIV medicine to help halt the catastrophic spread of the virus. 39 corporations claimed this was akin to piracy and sued the government. Saving lives was clearly not what this industry was about. But what few people realized at the time was that these new rules, which hardwired an obsession with intellectual property into the pharmaceutical industry, were going to be bad for nearly all of us because they would change the nature of the industry itself. In a previous age, for all Big Pharma may have profiteered, unethically pushed pills, corrupted medical professionals, and over-medicalized us, it did, underneath all of that, actually invent and manufacture medicines. Now it was going to be different. Rather than inventing new medicines, Big Pharma could simply buy up research done by others. It would then work out ways to extend and defend its monopoly rights to produce those medicines, extracting as much profit as it possibly could for as long as it could. It no longer mattered if the medicines were unaffordable to nearly everyone. The short-term financial results were spectacular for pharmaceutical shareholders. Of course, Big Pharma had already been a highly profitable industry. Between the mid-50s and late 90s, the pharmaceutical industry's average profit margin was already more than double the average of big business at the time. But since the turn of the century, as the industry became increasingly financialized, this rocketed, and the drug companies now enjoyed more than three times the average profit margin. In the years between 2016 and 2020, just 14 top drug companies handed more than half a trillion dollars to their mostly very rich shareholders. But this hasn't made these corporations more productive. Rather, it has turned them into particularly lucrative hedge funds, more dependent on lawyers than scientists. Today, Big Pharma invents very few genuinely breakthrough medicines. Most important medicines that are developed have public money, university departments, and small research companies to thank. And yet, the intellectual property model that has come to define Big Pharma allows them to buy up that knowledge and make life-and-death decisions on how much is produced, what is charged for it, and who can buy it. The fundamental problems with this intellectual property model were obvious to everyone during COVID-19. In the run-up to the pandemic, Big Pharma had little interest in researching pathogens that might cause a major epidemic, or indeed in researching vaccines full stop. They simply didn't represent the sort of jackpot that, say, a new cancer drug could produce. Research into coronavirus had in fact been done, but with public money. And yet, when the pandemic struck, that research was effectively handed over to Big Pharma to actually get the vaccines out of the door and injected into arms. The result was massive inequality in who got those vaccines and who didn't, as corporations like Pfizer and Moderna limited global supply by refusing to share the know-how with anyone else. Pfizer even attempted to hold the US administration to ransom by trying to charge the government an eye-popping $100 a dose on a vaccine that costs somewhere between $1.20 and $6.70 to produce. One former US official accused them of war profiteering, while another complained, it's not even their vaccine. But these problems were not an aberration. They're hardwired into the pharma system. The same dynamics rendered drugs like Hamira, a treatment for Crohn's disease and rheumatoid arthritis, completely unaffordable to almost everyone. Hamira wasn't invented by drug giant AbbVie, but that company bought the rights to produce it. After spending money finding ways to extend the company's monopoly, they jacked up the price by 470%. In the US, Hamira costs around $77,000 for a year's supply. Even in Europe, these sort of prices mean that new drugs are often rationed. And then there are the medical problems which get no attention at all. Antibiotic resistance is likely to lead to tens of billions of deaths a year in coming decades, but it's simply not profitable enough for corporations used to making eye-watering returns. Former Goldman Sachs chair and conservative Lord Jim O'Neill was so frustrated by the industry's lack of action on the issue that he said he thought parts of the industry should be nationalized. By now, it's an open secret in political circles that the industry's old justifications for its shameless profiteering simply don't hold up to scrutiny. But with Biden at long last trying to tackle stratospheric drug prices, could we be about to witness a sea change? Whilst it may be true that the changes the Biden administration are making emerge from specific US political considerations, such as the fear of another right-wing populist in the White House and the increased power of the left within the Democrat Party, These changes are also a response to an industry which is failing all around the world at the most fundamental level. Even in countries like Britain, where patients are protected from big farmers' prices, the cost to the NHS is astronomical. In 2020, the price of medicines in the NHS increased to nearly £20 billion. If we also want to produce useful medicines and ensure that they are available to all who need them, we need to transform this industry. There is now widespread acceptance in political circles that the age of hyperglobalization is over. Trickle-down economics has failed, and there is a reassertion of the role of the state, intervention, and planning. For Biden, the changes he is proposing to drug pricing are a small part of a wider economic transformation, particularly aimed at green transition. In Britain, Labour has bought into the idea that some state intervention may be necessary. It has said it will boost research funding which it will indeed need to if we want to develop important medicines. But it doesn't seem to have grasped that you need to do more than throw cash at the private sector. So what's needed? First, to transform the economy, the cash invested in medicine development needs to have strict public interest conditions applied. The first of these conditions should be a prohibition on the private ownership of any resulting intellectual property. Rather... As the think-tank Commonwealth has proposed, such intellectual property should be put into a public trust which can then help boost collaboration, sharing and public ownership. Similar changes to the intellectual property regime will help in many other areas of the economy too, not least in combating climate change. Second, we need public manufacturing. In the US, the states of California, Michigan and Maine have all started looking at public manufacturing to overcome big farmers' failures with California allocating $100 million to make insulin through a non-profit enterprise at close-to-cost price, available to all who need it. The UK government, meanwhile, learned exactly the wrong lessons from the pandemic and sold off the UK's new public vaccine facility. It now sits idle. And finally, research, development and manufacturing all need to be far more dispersed around the globe. Giving a handful of countries a stranglehold has failed the majority of the world for too long. While some emerging economies are already investing in their own capacity, others should be assisted to do so. COVID-19 has proved that it's in all of our interest that healthcare for everyone, everywhere, becomes a reality. Of course, all of this will mean standing up to the power of Big Pharma. But you can be sure the industry won't relinquish its power without a struggle. When Biden passed the Inflation Reduction Act, which included new price negotiating powers for the state, Big Pharma's lobbying machine went into overdrive outspending all other industries. A leading senator said pharma companies had thrown everything but the kitchen sink against the measure. A representative of big pharma lobbyists sent a chilling message to members of Congress saying that if they had voted for the bill, they would not get a free pass and warning that, quote, few associations have all the tools of modern political advocacy at their disposal in the way pharma does. Now, Joe Biden is no revolutionary. But he has recognized that Big Pharma is fundamentally broken and its power must be disputed if it is to have any hope of appearing to create even a moderately fairer society. Such a step has opened the way for Big Pharma's stranglehold on medicines and healthcare around the world to be challenged. It provides an opportunity for governments and movements everywhere to reshape the way we make our drugs. This battle won't be easy, but there is really no other way of developing and distributing the medicines the world will need in the decades to come. Thank you for listening to today's show. Macrodose is a Planet B production. If you enjoyed the show and you'd recommend it to friends, please consider leaving us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. You can find all our episodes, including our bonus interview content, on our Patreon at patreon.com slash macrodose.